And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog with CFA Institute, and our guest today is Delilah Rothenberg, co-founder and executive director of the Pre-Distribution Initiative. Thanks for joining us, Delilah. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Not a problem. Not a problem. I began hearing about what you guys are doing about a year, year and a half ago. You know, we, we unfortunately run in the same circles and know a lot of the same people. And so I was very curious about what you guys were doing, and I knew eventually we'd want to have you on. But a lot of people probably don't know what the pre-distribution initiative is about and probably haven't heard about you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here, and a little bit about what the pre-distribution initiative is up to and what you guys do. Sure. I think a little context on the history of the pre-distribution initiative and how I got here could be helpful. I started my career in public equities on the sell side in 2004. I actually went into finance because I was interested in attracting capital to underserved areas of the world, like sub-Saharan Africa. But I didn't study finance in school, and so I didn't know much about the different asset classes. I really didn't know there were different asset classes. And somehow I found my way to to the sell side in equities. And so I, I was working in that space up until 2008. I was at Bear Stearns during the financial crisis on the trading floor. Very big learning experience for me. Oh, wait, I didn't know that. We're going to have to have a whole different podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a, a really fascinating and difficult time, but I learned a lot. But it also gave me the opportunity to pivot my career to private markets, which I, you know, I had by that point had realized that there were different asset classes and I, I knew that I wanted to be in some sort of private capital markets asset class like venture capital or private equity. And I had a few different opportunities in front of me and ended up working for a private equity firm that was one of the leaders in sub-Saharan Africa at the time. And uh, it was a short assignment helping raise uh, capital for their second Pan-African private equity fund, but that started my career in private capital markets. And from then on, I was able to spend time in that space across a number of different job functions and different segments of the space. So I worked on infrastructure. I worked at the fund manager level. I worked with portfolio companies. I managed financial models and pitch decks, but I also really got involved with the ESG and impact investing side of things, particularly because, at least in the early stages, we were very focused on developing countries or frontier markets. And a lot of the financing came from development finance institutions that were very concerned about environmental and social sustainability. And so long before ESG became so popular, as popular as it is today, there was this this area of finance that was very focused on environmental and social issues already with development finance. And I got an early start in that space around 2008, 2009 then. And over time, I started to focus on developed markets as well. 
And around 2017, I was working with a middle market private equity fund manager, and I was thinking about how we can address economic inequality with our portfolio companies. And I was thinking about economic inequality because it seemed to be a growing systemic risk, secular stagnation, this concept that when wealth pools to very few wealthy individuals in the economy, their marginal propensity to spend is lower than those of those less well off. Right. And so uh, there's a there's a great professor, um, Atif Mian at Princeton University, and him, him, he and some of his peers have done some analysis around what that means for the economy. Larry Summers has done a lot of work around secular stagnation, but um, there's there's this dynamic where less spending is occurring in the economy and more wealth is being saved or invested in ways that fuel the spending of the less well-off through debt, which can be which can be a systemic risk. Right. A majority of the a majority of what drives the, our economy is consumption. I think it's about seventy percent or something like that. The last I've saw, I've seen. So that makes intuitive sense. Right. Uh, that, that when you have wealth accumulating in in those smaller pool smaller pool of people, that is going to create a, a drag or a headwind. You know, whatever metaphor you want to use uh, on the economy. Absolutely. So, you know, I was starting to think about this and I was going to all different kinds of ESG and impact investing conferences, uh, both in private equity and in public equities. And um, I was thinking about, I was learning a lot from those conferences. So there was talk about corporate executive to average worker compensation ratios and the public equities conferences. And so I thought about, well, this isn't talked that much about in private equity, but maybe we can take some of those ideas and apply it to our portfolio companies. So narrowing executive to average worker compensation ratios in our portfolio companies, paying a living wage uh, was a growing uh, topic of interest at public equities conferences, and um, even sharing some equity in the portfolio companies with workers of those portfolio companies to help them build wealth. Mm-hmm. And ironically, I was catching up with a libertarian friend of mine who said, Delilah, it's great that you're looking at executive to average worker compensation ratios in your portfolio companies, but you work in private equity. And maybe not for your private equity firm, as a you know, middle market uh, growth PE firm, but for some of the mega fund managers, particularly in the LBO space, their executives are often compensated at a rate way higher than typical corporate executives. And if you look at the numbers, even of large publicly traded banks, their executives typically make roughly $35 million a year. And yet the executives of the large publicly traded private equity firms are making around $100 million a year or more. And often multiple executives at those big private equity firms are making that amount. So, you know, again, as wealth pools to very few individuals, um, there's the risk of secular stagnation. It also matters from an economic inequality, SDG 10 you know, reduced inequalities point of view, because when wealth pools to very few individuals, um, they're in a position to buy up equities like real estate or public equities and push up the valuations and the barriers to entry to invest for others become way higher. And so there's sort of a downward or upward spiral, so to speak, when you have this growing wealth inequality, where it becomes more and more difficult to address over time. And so I realized from all of this that there was something with a structure of private equity 
the two and 20 model, the 2% management fee, right. the 20% right. carried interest, that could change. Perhaps the carried interest could be shared with workers in the portfolio companies, which was really similar to the idea of sharing equity in the portfolio companies with workers. Mm. Maybe the 2% management fee could be adjusted. It could be an annual GNA budget proposed to the LPAC, the Limited Partner Advisory Committee, something like that. And so I uh, realized that I couldn't actually raise awareness about these issues well, working in private equity, mm-hmm. my job to was to focus on ESG and impact investing at the portfolio company level, not to right. adjust the fund manager level. And so right. I decided to seek a fellowship. I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship to support my research with Open Society Foundations and uh, started to talk to all different kinds of civil society stakeholders, labor advocates, asset owners and allocators and asset managers about you know, how the private equity structure could be adjusted to address the disproportionate wealth that's accumulated by the fund managers, particularly the executives at the fund manager versus mm-hmm. uh, portfolio company workers. And so that led to the pre-distribution initiative. In early 2019, I partnered up with a few colleagues to launch The initiative uh, also published an article in Stanford Social Innovation Review about fund manager compensation and sort of the irony that so many large private equity firms were beginning to embrace ESG and impact investing, yet it was really at the portfolio company level and they weren't looking at some of their own potential negative impacts when it came to their compensation structures. And we also started to realize that there were other issues at the fund manager level that weren't captured by typical ESG and impact investing you know, data measurement and management frameworks as well. So uh, when we were talking to civil society and labor advocates, they highlighted how they're very concerned about high leverage that's used in portfolio company transactions and how too much leverage can overburden the portfolio company to the point where where that debt makes it difficult for them to offer quality jobs and quality and affordable goods and services. There are also concerns about whether the funds themselves, not just the portfolio companies, are domiciled in tax havens or other forms of tax structuring at the fund manager level, um, like fee and carry waivers, or lobbying and political spend at the fund manager level. And the more I thought about these issues, the more I began to reflect on the fact that my my job functions in the ESG and impact space were so distinct and often came into conflict with the goals that I would have managing a financial model. And so, you know, time value of money, you want to make back as much money as fast as possible. Well, that has some inherent conflicts with long-term sustainable investing. And, you know, when I would say we need to perhaps do more stakeholder engagement or do more studies before a project starts, there's there's some really hard questions or you know perhaps develop a project more slowly for various reasons to manage biodiversity there's some really hard questions that come up about about the returns and so i i really wanted i thought it was very important to start exploring these issues more carefully because there just wasn't the space for that in in the existing forums that i was going to all right so we'll get into we're going to stop we're going to start as we always do with kind of the high level of of, of the, these issues, and then we'll get into the the details of what what pre-distribution initiative is doing. Uh, but I ask you, like I've asked all our guests, you know, is there one or a series of numbers or facts kind of help frame the issue for people uh, listening to the podcast to give them kind of a high level understanding of what you guys are doing, and then we'll get into the details. Yeah, around the time that we started the pre-distribution initiative, Bloomberg Business Week came out with an article on private equity. And I thought that one sentence in particular was 
particularly captivating, which is that there are more private equity managers who make at least $100 million annually than investment bankers, top financial executives, and professional athletes combined. So that was, I think that dynamic is really important to keep in mind when we think about the framing of things that, you know, you can't just have responsible investing by focusing on the portfolio companies alone. It also has to take into account what's going on at the fund manager level. I also recently read a paper by Benjamin Braun that was reflecting on the growth of public pension funds and capital markets in general. And he noted that retirement assets have grown from $370 billion in 1974 to $35 trillion in 2021, and that across size groups, public pension funds have roughly tripled their alternative share from under 10% in 2001 to 30% across asset classes in 2020. Wow. I, I would not have guessed that it was that high. Yeah. So I've seen different numbers about the alternative share, um, certainly in the 20% range. Not sure. I, I didn't dig into the details behind the 30% number, but I'm not surprised at this point, given this uh, 20% number, well, 20, high 20s percent number, I should say, number has been creeping up already. No, I, 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 I believe you. I trust, I, trust, I trust your numbers. I, I knew that, I knew that trend, but I was I was it hit me that that was a little higher than, than I expected. That's all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so a little bit more broad framing, and then we'll get to get into the nitty gritty. Uh, you know, I ask everyone who's on the podcast, where have we been, where are we now, and where are we going? We are talking about private equity, talking about you know the structures of the, and, and we'll get into the deep the, the kind of the four pillars you guys you have, but I'll, I'll save that for later. But where have we been? Where are we now and where are we going as far as the work you guys are doing? Yeah. So we're operating in a space that recognizes that climate change and inequality and biodiversity loss are, some people say systemic risks, and we've certainly believed they're systemic risks to society uh, and nature, but systematic risks when we talk about markets and portfolios. Right. They can't be diversified away. And you know, it sounds like you've already had uh, John Lukomnik on the podcast. I know Tip, right. Bill Burkhart from the Investment Integration Project has done a podcast with you. So hopefully your listeners are familiar with the these concept around system, concepts around system level investing. But I think it's worth noting in the context of this conversation that we really are moving from a world where investors seem to prioritize financial materiality of particular portfolio companies. So they wanted information about what's the financially material risk to a particular portfolio company's financials. Not necessarily what is a financially material risk to our portfolios that might not be a risk to an individual portfolio. So so portfolio companies have externalities, right? And those externalities right. have not necessarily been of interest to investors in the past because of how we shape and frame materiality. But it does seem like investors are starting to recognize that those externalities, even though they might not negatively impact a portfolio company's financial performance, it can impact their portfolios because they have negative impacts on the economy and markets are based on economies and portfolios are based on markets, particularly diversified portfolios. So that's important. And I think investors are starting to realize that. They're starting to embrace the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. We're involved with an initiative to launch a Task Force on Inequality-Related Financial Disclosures that 
has been getting great feedback and reception from investors. And I think that the work of Tip and John McComnick and Jim Hawley and Nell Mano and Bob Monks and that whole community has really made a positive impact. And I think that's where we are now. And investors are starting to care about the externalities of portfolio companies. But we haven't gotten to the point where investors are thinking about the externalities of their own investment structures or the investment structures of their fund managers. And I think that's where we're going. And so the pre-distribution initiative published a paper in early 2021 called ESG 2.0, Measuring and Managing Investor Risks Beyond the Enterprise Level. And that paper really looks at two key trends that have been occurring in the economy. One is the institutionalization of capital and the resulting consolidation of capital flows. And the other is the migration up the risk return spectrum for yield as investors uh, have responded to a low interest rate environment. And so, you know, we've, this, is, this helps explain one of the earlier, a few of the earlier numbers. This is connected to some of the earlier numbers that uh, we talked about in terms of the size of capital markets growing. And a lot of the players in capital markets now are institutional and capital has become much more institutionalized since the 1950s. So you have a lot of large players in the market, asset owners and allocators who need to put huge sums of capital to work and they need to do it efficiently. And so they tend to invest in larger and larger fund managers. So for for instance, as context across private asset classes in 2020, while only 15.7% of the funds raised were in amounts of $1 billion or more, they represented 72.4% of total capital raised. And then at the portfolio company level, you know, these large fund managers then need to put capital to work efficiently, and they tend to invest in larger and larger deals. So average deal size has also tripled over the last 15 years. And so you can see this dynamic where a lot of people today, you know, you read the if you read business news regularly, you'll see that there's concern about corporate consolidation and there's a lot of effort around antitrust enforcement or enhancement to address corporate consolidation. But there seems to be a more subtle trend going on that's fueling corporate consolidation and fund manager consolidation as well, squeezing out diverse and emerging fund managers, which is this consolidation of capital flows. And so we explore that in the paper. We also look at how, as I mentioned, capital is going to more alternatives. And so because of lower performing traditional safe investments like in, in fixed income, investors have had to migrate up the risk return spectrum toward leveraged buyouts and on the flip side of those capital structures, high yield bonds, leveraged loans, CLOs, as well as other kinds of alternatives, uh, venture capital and hedge funds. And uh, we're really looking mostly at leveraged buyout forms of private equity as well as venture capital. We are not anti-private equity. I still believe that Private equity is an important source of capital to small and growing businesses or medium-sized businesses, and that the private capital is has a lot of potential for good. But we are concerned about how much debt is in the economy associated with leverage buyout strategies and sort of the blitz-scaling models of venture capital and what that means for risk in markets as well as risk for other stakeholders. And so as, as average deal sizes have increased... That means that there's a lot of capital chasing perhaps too few deals. Valuations are going up. That creates an incentive to layer on more debt. And non-financial corporate debt is now at historical highs. 
leverage ratios are historical highs, covenants are light, underwriting standards are are weak. And we're at a point where it becomes very difficult for central banks to raise interest rates because there's so much high risk debt out there. Yeah, and, and as we and as we speak, it's it's you know early April 2022 where the Fed has said quite explicitly there's going to be quite a few rate hikes coming this year, and so I would be interesting to see you and I if you and I are having this conversation six months from now. There will likely have been a lot of interesting things happened because of those things you just talked about, because of those high debt and leverage ratios. I'm unfortunately old enough to remember what was going on, you know, in the in the dot com boom and then in the financial crisis. And, and again, I'm going to have to have a separate conversation with you about what happened at Bear Stearns. It's fascinating. Yeah. But it rhyme, you know, these things rhyme with things we've seen in the past. With, with you know, the party, the party goes on too long, and then the punch bowl is taken away to to torture that metaphor that we always hear about the the Fed raising interest rates, and then what happens. And so that will be, of course, very interesting to see what what happens over over the next 6, 12, 18 months, two years, but but we'll have to wait and see. But I want to jump into a couple, you know, getting more details about what you guys, more detail about what you guys do and what you're doing. And one of the questions we talked about before that I want to touch on is, you know, how investors and account investors and accountants. Unfortunately for me, those are probably the people who listen to the podcast the most. Or unfortunately for them, they have to listen to me. How can they focus on system level investing? What tools can they use? Uh, some of the work you guys do to better aid aid them in their engagement and their investing and their stewardship. I think it's important for investors before we get into the tools to sort of bring this full circle to how these dynamics and markets negatively impact them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we are in a difficult situation and we can't raise interest rates significantly, even if the Fed hikes aggressively, Mm -hmm. it probably will not be much different than at some point between the global financial crisis and when COVID first hit. So it doesn't seem likely that we're going to be in a very high interest rate environment. And so that means that there's going to be continued incentive to be at the high end of the risk return spectrum for yield, which means more debt. So it's, it's, and, and more risk in the system and perhaps, you know, high valuations at certain points in time. So there are risks of asset bubbles and credit crises and, you know, there are also these other risks to the system of secular stagnation and of risk being shifted to workers and communities that they're not compensated for. And so that inequality can really create instability in the system. We are working with investors to help them understand how these risks manifest in their portfolios. And it really gets back to this issue that we talked about earlier, which is that ESG professionals and oftentimes impact investing professionals or stewardship teams can be different than those who are actually doing the financial analysis and making investment decisions. And they are incentivized differently and they have different priorities and there aren't really good tools that have been developed to quantify these systematic risks and integrate them into asset allocation, decision-making, and portfolio construction. And so that's what we're really focused on. And we have four key pillars of work to help connect those dots. So the first is improved standard setting and disclosure. And we are uh, working on 
on a particular project with Impact Frontiers that's a spin out from the Impact Management Project. This started with the Impact Management Project, but we're continuing it with Impact Frontiers. And that's developing, co-creating really with diverse stakeholders, including the investment community and civil society and labor advocates, measurement and management tools to assess investment structures and to assess fund manager level activity and perhaps also asset owner and allocator activity, but certainly fund manager level activity. That's across asset classes. And it's looking at both the positive impacts of investors as well as some unintended negative consequences of different investor level activity and structures. So that work is coming along. If folks want to go to the Impact Frontiers website, they'll see a section where we have a draft paper that's been published with some draft metrics that we're continuing to workshop throughout this year. And we invite any of your listeners to provide input on those disclosures and help fine tune them for market use. Is there a is there a deadline where you're looking for comments just to let people know? Yeah, we'll plan on working on that throughout this year. Okay. So throughout 2022, uh, we haven't put a firm deadline on it yet, but okay. it's about right. roughly a year long consultation period and workshopping period. We also have another project under this first pillar of work which is the Task Force on Inequality-Related Financial Disclosures. And we're partnering with a few other organizations on launching that. There is also a wider coalition of allies uh, that's developing to support this initiative, which we call TIFD for short, again, Task Force on Inequality-Related Financial Disclosures. And that's looking at both company-level activity as well as investor-level activity. So all levels of the capital markets value chain. And it's looking at how inequality impacts companies and investors' financials and how companies and investors impact inequality. Mm-hmm. It's being co-created with investors in the investment community, but also civil society, labor advocates, academics, economists, with a particular focus on ensuring that the global south and marginalized communities are included. And it's not just being designed as a disclosure framework, but also coming up with recommendations on targets and what does good look like, reflecting on where do we really need to get to to address inequality and the risks of inequality to all these different stakeholders. So that's coming along, and that that is a multi-year project. Well, I was I was just I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to ask, you know the. The TNFD uh, came out with their proposed first kind of first draft of their standard about a month ago. And they, I first heard about them about a year and a half, two years ago when they were just starting to, to ramp things up. Can you give folks kind of a, a, an idea of the timeline for this effort if they want to get involved? You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to send a lot of people your way, but if they want to get involved, you know, how they can uh, get in touch with you guys, kind of what, what is the timetable roughly, you know, you don't have to tell me that on August 1st, 2023, something's going to come out, but you know, what is the kind of the, 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 the timetable, the runway you guys are looking at? So if people want to help out and, and, and see your progress, uh, what they should look for. Yeah, absolutely. So this year, we're focused on co-creating an inclusive governance structure for TIFTI because we believe it's very important to center those impacted by inequality. And so we want to make sure that it's not just a top-down, global north, investor-led effort, but that other stakeholders are part of uh, developing these these metrics as well. And in the spirit of a slogan from the disability movement, nothing about us without us. 
So that that, uh, seems to make sense. It would be hard to address inequality without getting the input of those most affected. So the inclusive governance structure we're aiming to co-create this year. Next year, we are looking at developing working groups that focus on different aspects of inequality. So we can have specialists in gender and race and global north versus global south and ability and, you know, access to different resources like water or food or health come we can have specialist working groups that acknowledge intersectionality and work with one another, but they would map existing disclosure frameworks, synthesize them, identify gaps, and work to close the gaps. Uh, ideally, by 2024, we'll have draft disclosures and guidance for consultation. And then in 2025, we're aiming to uh, launch the framework and start to pilot it. So there will be lots of opportunities to engage depending on what different listeners are interested in. Certainly, 2023 is going to be a big year for mapping existing disclosures and closing gaps. That'll be really important. So that's all the first pillar of work. We've got three more. We have three more. Buckle up, up, everybody. Yeah. So, (laughs) So... Developing these measurement and management tools and guidance on setting targets is important. But for institutional investors to really integrate analysis of systematic risks into their investment decision making, they need to have enabling governance structures. And so there's been increased interest in adjusting the investment belief statement, the investment policy statement, but there's not a lot of talk about other policies and procedures and job descriptions, incentive structures, performance reviews, committee terms of reference that could be adjusted to to really drive an institution toward addressing systematic risks and incentivize all team members. And so we are working on a project with the Investment Integration Project and John LeComnick and Keith Johnson to develop guidance and a handbook on how policies and procedures at the investment governance level can be adjusted to Mm. align with a systemic stewardship and these concepts of universal ownership. That work stream does also involve consultation with investors, and it's not intended to be prescriptive. And so we expect to be coming out with different sections focused on different types of policies and procedures over the next months, perhaps longer than a year. We're still figuring out how long it'll take to get through all of this. Mm-hmm. But this this won't be you know, a few of us in a room coming up with policies and procedures. It's very much going to be an active engagement with the market and informed by the market. So we hope to uh, to be talking to a number of your listeners there. I'm sure that they have valuable input and hopefully this will be a valuable tool for them. The third pillar of work is on improved internal financial practices. And so that really has to do with valuation, benchmarking. So for instance, we have a collaboration with the Responsible Asset Allocator Initiative, our RAI. Uh, so Scott Kalb there, you might know, is um, a former chief investment officer of KIC in Korea. And this is an association of large public invest, institutional public investors. And Paul O'Brien is also involved in this initiative. He is a former deputy chief investment officer of Abu Dhabi Investment Authority and is a current trustee of Wyoming's retirement system. And we we're working on a project to explore how benchmarks can be adjusted to acknowledge or account for externalities. Because if we're going to account for externalities moving forward, 
And benchmarking really dictates our asset allocation decisions. And we're using financial benchmarks of the past. And those financial benchmarks don't account for externalities. Then you're really comparing apples and oranges. You can't use historical financial benchmarks to inform future financial returns effectively if if they're not also considering these externalities. And when I say externalities, there can be positive and negative externalities. So intangibles, like the value of human capital, can be a positive externality. So we're not necessarily talking about sort of across the board accounting for negative externalities and that in, in meaning that we're going to have lower historical financial benchmarks and then expect lower future returns. But there does need to be some analysis around this. And so we're working with a number of partners who are working on different accounting methodologies, talking to investors about what does it mean to, to price in these, these values that we haven't been thinking about. Yeah. I, I'll probably be bothering you more in that, in that area in the future, because that's a, that's a fascinating topic that I, I, I'd love to dive into on a podcast and probably more, frankly, just the issue of benchmarks. Now, I've been, again, I've, I've been around too long to the, to have been invested in S&P index fund for the last 20, 30 years, as all of us have, you know, or if you're listening to this in a different country, you know, the FTSE or whatever the benchmark is, and they're very staid things that haven't, don't, you know, don't change and just, it's just market cap based most of the time. And what happens if you shake up those assumptions about what's in that benchmark? What's the assumptions behind the benchmark? Do you take into account positive and negative externalities? Do you weight things differently? Uh, we all just take for granted the benchmarks we have. And they're not, they're not good or bad. They're just tools. But could we have a more diverse set of tools along with the benchmarks we have to better address some of these issues? Uh, so that's a fascinating topic, and I'm glad you guys are taking it on. But I, I'll, I'll stop talking. I'll, you can get to the, the fourth pillar. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, the, the benchmarking question, of course, is not it, – the issues related to benchmarking are not specific to ESG or responsible no, investing. No. Uh, yeah, yeah. There are all it's kinds of other age-old issues with benchmarking, too, that – yeah, so so that's that's one area we're exploring. We're also continuing to think about balancing time value of money metrics like IRR with um, other metrics like multiple uninvested capital, which might reduce incentives to engage in financial engineering or cut corners on ESG. Of course, time value of money does have an important role in financial analysis. So can't ignore it completely um, in asset allocation. So that's financial analysis. That's the third pillar. And then the last pillar is really exploring regenerative investment structures and what is not regenerative. So we've already done some research with the ESG 2.0 working paper on what uh, what doesn't seem to be working. And we start to explore at a high level what could work. Um, and so uh, we're looking at revenue-based financing models and redeemable equity, particularly for um, for companies that that are smaller and growing but aren't able to grow fast enough to be um, venture capital style material. So uh, they don't have that hockey stick-like growth profile. They um, are not positioned to blitz scale. They don't need huge amounts of capital. As CB Insight says, they don't need to be a fog rod with capital. Um, and you know there might be unintended negative impacts if they're fog rod with capital in terms of corporate consolidation and um, cutting corners. So 
Um, so revenue-based financing and redeemable equity can be perhaps more regenerative options in that space. Um, in private equity, we're looking at all different kinds of features for different purposes. We're looking at worker ownership, community ownership, particularly in real assets. Um, so communities like workers also um, take a lot of risk and create a lot of value when it comes to real assets and land-based development, um, whether it be real estate or infrastructure. Uh, we're also looking at permanent capital vehicles um, and, uh, and, and a you know, number of other structures. We're, we're fans of growth equity in many situations. And so, again, um, we're big believers in the private capital markets, but um, really think that the that the more regenerative investment structures lie in some of the smaller opportunities and the niche opportunities. And we're looking at how can we scale those up to be accessible to institutions, but how can we also work with institutions to perhaps make smaller investments so that they're not uh, aggregating so much capital across very few opportunities and engaging in pro-cyclical behavior that results in these credit crises and the asset um, bubbles and, and negative risks for everybody. So, um, that will that probably uh, requires more engagement with smaller asset owners and allocators, which we haven't had the capacity to do to date. But there is uh, going to be some work in the near future to engage with smaller asset owners and allocators to see how we can scale up some of these um, emerging "quote unquote" asset classes. Yeah, that's such an inter- interesting space, and again, probably another another whole podcast or more can be done on that. Just the the. The structure of what is investing in and what can be invested in is going to change. Just look at the world, whether it's climate or other issues or natural capital or human capital. What you guys are doing is just getting at the ground floor of this very interesting space. And so I would encourage people to read you know, the ESG 2.0 paper and follow what you guys do in, in, that, in that area. And with, with all these pillars, I'm wondering how many people do you have to, to do all this stuff? Uh, or, and uh, and maybe 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 some people listening to this may, may be sending you resumes soon because it sounds like you guys will be, will be quite busy. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, we have been making do with a very small budget um, to date from, from some amazing donors. Um, but, you know, interestingly, the the donor interest in this space is not very high. I think that a lot of donors think that investors should be paying for these kinds of services. And yet, you know, investors aren't really ready to be, there's still a case to be made for why this kind of work is even important to them and why they should allocate budgets to this kind of work. So we're um, donor funded and, and these are very complex issues that a lot of donors might not understand, or they might be more interested in directly helping the impacted stakeholders who are affected by a particular private equity deal, for instance, um, than getting into this systemic level. And so it's been myself and two colleagues part-time. We are planning on hiring an associate to focus on investment structures and capital markets analysis, and that should be coming up very soon by mid-year. And we might also have a fellowship for a housing residential real estate analyst to work on an affordable house, affordable and sustainable housing project that we're exploring. All right, well, I'm glad I'm glad we can help get the word out to to folks. So hopefully you'll be annoyed by the amount of emails uh, and, and LinkedIn pings you'll be getting in the next couple of weeks. Well, this this is uh, due to come out middle of April, so next week. So we'll see. You can you can you can get back to me at the end of the month and complain. <laughs> that about- would. No, no, no. That this this is great. We need more people 
who are specifically trained in financial analysis um, and really understands the asset allocation issues to to be doing this kind of work. Okay. Well, before we get to the end where uh, everyone's anticipating what homework you're going to give them, uh, what, what they should be reading, we, we talked about in our conversation earlier this week, um, some of the, you know, what's, and I, and I, and I mentioned it briefly earlier with, you know, the TNFD standard that came out, the SEC came out with their rules on their proposed rule on climate and climate disclosures uh, three or four weeks ago, the end of, I think the last day of March, the ISSB came out with something similar from a to kind of set up global baseline and climate disclosures. Uh, so you can talk about those as much or as you, as you want, but uh, you said you wanted to focus on something that uh, folks have probably skimmed over that uh, that they shouldn't as much. Form PF uh, that the SEC came out with a proposal on in January. Uh, and then something we're both antip- anticipating, you know, what is the SEC and others going to say about human capital management disclosures? You know, right now, I think, I believe all that the U.S. Co- public companies have to disclose as far as human capital is, is the number of employees they have. Uh, and of course, uh, investors want a lot, more, a lot more data than that. And it's not, and it's ha- that that push for more data on human capital management is happening, of course, not just in the U.S., but but around the world as well. So if you wish, you know, talk a little bit about that, those issues, form PF and human capital management, what you, what you see and what you anticipate happening. Yeah. So actually, I'm just off another call about the anticipated proposed human capital management disclosures. And that's very exciting. And we are awaiting eagerly, eagerly waiting what will be proposed. So we plan to comment on that. We encourage all the listeners to look at that comment as well. Do you have an idea when we, when we, when we should expect it to come out or, or just a broadly second half of the year or, or, or something like that? I've heard in the next couple of months. Okay. So that's, I think that sounds, that's, that's about what I've heard, but I didn't know if you knew anything. I didn't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's, it's pretty imminent relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And then we are also looking at some of the other SEC proposals, obviously climate, we are also looking at, but there are some that the ESG community has not been looking at in so much detail. And and to be honest, we're, as a, we just mentioned, we're a small team, we're having a hard time keeping up with everything ourselves. <laughs> so uh, Form PF is the proposals from the SEC that the deadline's already passed a comment. But I think it's worth noting that the SEC is looking at how Form PF can be updated to better address some of the systematic risks that we've talked about and systemic risks in the private equity and hedge fund and private fund space. And so we did submit a comment letter there. Uh, the SEC also has an outstanding opportunity to comment on um, the proposals related to investor protections and private capital funds. And so that covers fees and expenses and how performance is calculated, conflicts of interest. And and so we are looking at that as well. It can be a good opportunity to address some of the risks that we are focused on at the pre-distribution initiative. And again, these topics that form PF and the investor protections and private capital funds proposals cover, they're they're not typically thought of as related to ESG, but they are. And uh, or at least if you're interpreting ESG as having evolved to not just focus on risks that are financially material to portfolio companies, but risks that are financially material to investors' portfolios. 
And so we think it's very important to pay attention to those. We also commented on pay versus performance proposal that had to do with looking at total shareholder return is a key metric for pay versus performance. And we talked about how total shareholder return can incentivize financial engineering by corporate executives. I understand that there's also work being done on buybacks and clawbacks. And so this is all very important stuff. And when we we really encourage your listeners that when they think about ESG, they don't just think about, oh, there's a climate proposal out or there's a human capital management proposal out that they think holistically about the whole structure of the system and how the structure of the system itself can affect climate issues or inequality issues or human capital uh, in this context. Agree. Yeah, the the SEC is up uh, is up to a lot more than just the, the headlines around climate. So I, I do the same. I encourage people to take a look at all that stuff. And we, and we're just as you guys are. We're struggling to to make sure we we comment on as much of it as we can. All right. Well, before we say goodbye to you, uh, this is the painful part of the of the podcast for all our listeners. Uh, I wonder how many people actually read the stuff that uh, the homework we give them. But we'll we'll see. Uh, I know my my nightstand is growing every every other week because. I get recommended books, and I've read about a third of them, or, or papers, or what it is. But I, I, it's getting bigger and bigger, and I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'll never keep up. But what can you add to that? Uh, you know, what are some things you think that listeners should? And you know, we've talked for about I think forty minutes now. But if people want to di- dive deeper into some of the work you, you're doing, some of the work you think you know isn't getting enough attention in this area, uh, what are some things people should should read, or listen to, or watch? Uh, that uh, you 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 are. Yeah, well, I just finished an interesting paper that I quoted earlier by Benjamin Braun, which is the fueling financialization: the economic consequences of funded pensions. So that paper talks about the institutionalization of capital and the growth of capital markets and how that can have unintended negative consequences. And I I just think it's an interesting paper to think about philosophically from a market structure and political economy point of view. I think it will really open people's minds to where we are now versus what the world has looked like in the past uh, and what it might mean for the future. Uh, Some of your listeners might also have already heard about this paper. I think it was well covered in Bloomberg and some other publications, but it's called The Eclipse of Rent Sharing, The Effects of Managers' Business Education on Wages and the Labor Share in the U.S. and Denmark. And that's by Darren. I actually did my honors thesis in university based re- looking at Darren Asimoglu's paper, but I always think I pronounce his name wrong. So it wasn't this paper. It was another <laughs> I, paper. But I, I, I would not even have attempted that, but so well done. Oh, thank you. And his, his co-authors, Alex Hay, I believe in Daniel Lemaire. And that's just such an interesting paper because it looks at corporate executives who have business school educations and the cost cutting related to labor that often occurs, might occur uh, after they're put in place and, and who benefits from that. And I think that it can help your listeners think about what might change in business education to have a more regenerative economy and and it's a it's a very well done paper yeah that's that's fascinating i have i i have not read it i will add that but it's a it's a it's a paper so it's not a book so i, I feel less intimidated if you want books my list like you it's i have a <laughs> nightstand and then i have a list beside what's on my nightstand uh american kleptocracy 
The Key Man, Davos Man, Tim Jackson's books on prosperity without growth and post-growth. And I really think it's important to just spend more time on history in general because it's really hard to see where we are and why things are the way they are unless we understand how we got here. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a great point. That so much of what we see happening in our world today, whether it's you know, and it's all and it's in all spheres, but we're talking about finance and and investing, rhymes with things that have happened in the past. Whether it's a tulip bulb mania and and everything in between, it. it I, I'm a student of history just because I find it inter- interesting. But uh, you know, if you can go out and find. Books on the you know financial industry, financial histories of uh, from the you know, the tulip mania to the the the, the depression up to the up to you know, what happened in the financial crisis. You'll see themes that that run through again, again, and again. It just pays to be a, a good student of history, so you don't repeat those same mistakes that were made in the past. We always will in some in some respect. Uh, but we can lessen those, lessen the pain of those. I think if we're if we're well informed about what what our actions may and may not lead to. Well said. Well, thanks, Delilah, for uh, for talking to us. I'm sure now that uh, hopefully COVID is is on the wane. You know, I've been speaking to people through virtually for two years. Hopefully, uh, we'll see each other in person later in the year. And uh, thanks for joining us. That'd be great. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Not a problem. Take care. You too. 